Though we may wander, he will not forsake us. Truer than earthly friend, he never fails our trust, for having loved us, he loves unto the end. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise and honor and glory for your Word. Without your Word, we have nothing. It's the Word that is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit is a discerner of both the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It gives us the only truth in the world. We believe, Lord, that all truth is your truth, and apart from you, even our consciences can absorb the fact that everything came from a creator, designer, uh, this ordered universe didn't just happen by happenstance. It didn't just happen by coincidence. It's, it's designed. It's purposeful. It has meaning. Even, even the outward, with all its sin-laden distortions, it's, it's still designed. But your word, Lord, it gives the truth. It turns us from pagans into people who can hold the Lord God in our hearts and give him proper praise, not only with our lips, but with our, our obedience. Lord, open your word. Lay it before us to be the truth that we might humble ourselves before it and, uh, and submit to your purpose. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are on the Not I But Christ uh, series. Uh, and this part of the series is from Jonah chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. We looked at uh, Jonah last week. Uh, chapter 1 this week we look at Jonah 2, the contrite prophet. And we're looking at his, particularly his prayer spoken from the belly of a big fish. But let me answer this question first before we get started. Why this series, Not I, But Christ? Why entitle this series of messages, Not I, But Christ? You know, the dynamic that sets apart the Christian faith from, from all others, all other faiths, all other religions, is not a set of rules to follow not a morality by which to conform and a means by which one can obtain a better life or rise to a higher manner of being. It is the realization that God in the person of Jesus Christ is central to all things, by whom all things were created and all things are sustained. This is big. The true Christian believer becomes aware that his existence and purpose 
have been determined by the one true Creator God. As spoken by Jonah in the first chapter when he said to men questioning him as to where he came from and what was his nation and what God he believed in, he said, I am a Hebrew and I fear Jehovah Elohim, Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. That's another way of saying the God of all gods, you know, the, the true God of all the false gods. He's the creator. The Christian is the one who believes Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all Old Testament prophecies. And he is, and that, per, and that God is owed all our allegiance to the creation and re, by reason of creation and redemption. We believe in the Old Testament as well as the New. We believe the first generation of Christian people led by the apostles chosen by Jesus Christ himself uh, taught from the Old Testament scriptures alone. The New weren't even written yet. And they did what they did, learned what they did as they preached, as they grew in their faith from the Old Testament. And that's why I'm preaching today from the Old Testament, not as some, some book that is worthy of being questioned because it says that someone lived three days and nights in the belly of a fish, but because we believe in a God who created everything from nothing. And that means that Jonah, the miracle of being transported by a fish, is nothing to God. It's ridiculous. Only people who would question that are people who are sadly lacking faith. Real faith, faith in the one true God. And I don't have the right to question anyone's heart. And if someone would choose to believe that it's phony, uh, I don't know their intentions. But on the outward appearance, anyone who would believe that God could create everything from nothing by merely speaking understands that the Jonah incident is nothing by comparison. So last week we, we learned that uh, Jonah was a prophet who ran away, not primarily because of fear from the city of Nineveh, which was quite savage and, and, and um, very violent in nature, but um, because he did not want Israel, his native country, to be destroyed, and Assyria most certainly was a threat to their destruction. So now being sent to Assyria, in particular the city of Nineveh, which was the capital, uh, he would be jeopardizing Israel by default if, if God chose to save them and allow them to continue doing what they were doing and thereby destroy Israel. As a result, he ended up in the belly of a fish, big fish, because God was going to send him to Nineveh, no matter how much he might turn tail and go in another direction. So, uh, from chapter 2, we read, Then Jonah prayed. Specifically, by that word, it means specifically to intercede for himself. Make supplication. And supplication, by the way, when you read that word, it takes prayer to a whole new level. It's the difference between bowing your head and saying, Lord, thank, we thank you for these thy gifts, 
And uh, maybe it's said half-heartedly, maybe it's meant, but the, the need isn't really, really like a man on his deathbed. Supplication turns prayers into necessary, an, a necessary act of coming to God and asking him for what is desperately needed. That's supplication. Supplication makes us weep, makes us cry out to God. Think of a loved one who may die and could be saved and how that prayer differs from just uh, going through the motions. It makes our prayers have a heavenly meaning. Supplication makes our sins awful in our own sight. It makes praise rise to the abode of heaven. And our requests are presented according to the will of God. That's supplication. So he prayed, and he, he prayed in a, in a significant way. As you might guess, he would, or as anyone would, from the belly of a big fish. It says, quote, Then Jonah prayed, quote, To the Lord his God. Now, when you address someone, it's indicative of what you're thinking of them, whether for good or for bad. And the names in the, always in Scripture have meaning, and they should always be read with meaning. I hope if you don't really know well the names of God, you know, you could write me. There's books that can be found that just look into the, the actual Hebrew and Greek meaning of the word names. And I think in, I'm thinking now primarily in the Old Testament, significant names found in the Old Testament for God. They lay out not only his nature, but his character. And he, he prayed to the Lord, and that word Lord, when it's all caps, as in the New American Standard, it's the word Jehovah, and it's the personal name of God. It doesn't actually have, you know, a definite article before it, uh, like uh, the Elohim or, or the strong faith one. In the beginning, God, in the beginning, Elohim created, you know, in, uh, with, with the word Jehovah, we're talking about Exodus chapter 3, the I am that I am. Because those are the basic, that, those words there are the basis for the word Jehovah, the one who was and who is and who is to come. And the I am that I am is this eternal being who spoke from the burning bush to Moses. And so that's the name um, he, when he prays to Jehovah, his Elohim, him, his strong faithful ones. And that's, without going into great detail, that's the meaning behind the word Elohim. It's in the plural, meaning the Trinity. El, which is mighty, all-powerful. And, uh, and, and O, O-H, which is really a derivative from the idea of to bind with a covenant or to make a promise. So 3,000 times when you word that, read that word capital G, small O, and small D in the New American Standard or King James or uh, English Version, you know, those, as that name is speaking of his faithfulness and not just his trinity and his power. So he prayed to the Lord God from the stomach of the fish. You know, no matter what his prayers 
sound like or what they seem to say, they're coming from the belly of the fish. And it's going to come more clear as we go on in this text. And he said, specifically, quote, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of hell. You heard my voice. So, and the first part, it looks like he is speaking to someone. I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of hell. It's almost like he's telling a story, right? And then he says, you, speaking to God, heard me. He cried aloud. He said, it says he called. It means cried aloud. There's something special about speaking out loud when you pray. You know what it is? It's, it's when you realize you're not alone. <laughs> you're praying. Maybe you're in your prayer closet. Maybe you're by yourself in those times of prayer at times when we're not speaking, praying in public or with a group of folks. You know, we're praying. We're praying by ourselves, but we're not alone. We're speaking out loud. Why? Why not just think it? Well, we know when we talk, we're talking to someone. We need to know that when we are in prayer, we're talking to God. Now, we don't need to speak to know that if in your heart you're convinced. I prefer when I pray. I mean, I always pray out loud because I'm talking to somebody. I'm I'm talking to God. And I I want to know that I'm not just mimicking words. I want to know, I want to recognize what I'm doing at the moment. And what I'm doing at the moment is I'm speaking to God. This is kind of an important part of prayer. Yeah, so we already spoke about the fact that he, okay, so he cries aloud, but also he cried out in distress. You know, these are the circumstances out of which if you don't pray, you can cause yourself an ulcer. You can internalize the anxiety you're feeling of the moment. This is an extreme case. You've been swallowed by a fish. Okay? Uh, You're in the hospital. You're about to die for some reason. Uh, Maybe it's a good feeling because you know in moments you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. If your assurance of faith is that strong, if your personal uh, uh, encounters with the living God over the course of your life, however long it may be, is, is so intimate, well, then you can't wait to, to pass from this life and go into his presence. But not everyone has quite that extent of faith. Jonah is in the belly of a fish, and he's meditating and considering what has just transpired. In, the, in this part of this prayer, is just that. He's in this, in this fish, meditating on what he's been doing and what God has done. Make no mistake about it. That's why it comes across this way. When it says, I called out of my distress to the Lord and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of hell. You heard my voice. I mean, he was a prophet. And I believe all prophets and all men of God in the Old Testament had some type of assurance just the way we do. 
It's just the presence of God with the real presence of God. And the closer you walk like an Enoch, who just literally, God just took him. There is this amount of assurance that is there. And he's, he's recounting his, his wicked ways. And he's recounting what God is doing right at this present moment in his life. Verse 2, and he said, you know, we, can, we, could, we could question who's he talking to when he's making these statements. And there's only three possibilities. One God, two the fish, and three himself. I seriously doubt he's talking to the fish. Himself, why? Because there's no one else there. I doubted anyone else was in the belly of the fish, okay? They could understand. So that only really leaves God. He's talking to God. He's alive in the belly of a fish. Seriously doubts. I seriously doubt he's comfortable. But I don't know if he's experiencing miracles saving him from body, bodily fluids and acids and digestive fluids. What I do know is that he was going on a short ride in a big fish. There was a lot of things we can't really nail down. We weren't there. I didn't see him when he came out of the fish, what he looked like. Was his skin bleached white? You know, the people go into all kinds of things of what he would have looked like and all. And it's possible. I'm not saying I don't know. The, the Bible is silent on exactly what he looked like and what he experienced. It was missing part of his ear because of the fluid. You know, I, I don't know these things. And so I really don't want to speak to things that I don't know. What I do know is he was speaking to someone. It had to be God. First is his recognition that in spite of being wayward, having recounted the storm to the ship's crew, that it was his fault. He was carrying the weight of having run out on God. I mean, how many of us walk out on God at times. This is not a fun experience for any person who has been redeemed personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe we hear something we don't want to believe. God asks for a sacrifice we don't want to offer. Maybe our sins and our lusts and our worldliness become more important than God. For whatever reason, we walk away. We're not as as passionate for Christ as we once were. We become somewhat lukewarm. We become maybe fearful, maybe indifferent. You know, there's a lot of ugly words that can be used for what happens when a person who's a child of God walks away from God. When life, so to speak, turns against us, do we blame ourselves or or do we say stupid things like, God, why did you let this happen? I mean, Jonah could have said that. I don't read it in his prayer. Uh, but he could have said something of, the, of that nature. Maybe the seriousness of Jonah's circumstances provoked him to honesty. I don't know. I don't know his, motiv- his motivation. But what we do know is Jonah was being honest from the prayer. He was honest with the men from the beginning, and he was honest uh, the ship's crew, and he was honest in the, in the belly in, of the fish. The greatest times of growth in my own life have always occurred as a result of my honesty during times of great stress. Maybe I was faithful, maybe I wasn't, 
but the stress certainly caused an honesty to appear by the grace of God. You know, Corey Ten Boom was a person who was abused and imprisoned during the Second World War. She was hiding Jews. She was Jewish. And she was hiding Jews from Israel's elites and his, his military, and she went to prison for it. And lost family in prison, was brutally treated. And I never read a book where she went into details but then she started speaking about forgiveness when the war was over. And she knew in order to recover, in order to walk in faith, you know, for all the things she experienced and had become very bitter herself and explains it in her book uh, about some time during that imprisonment. As I'm not worthy, I have no right to judge through the brutality of all of that. But one time she tells a story when she was speaking to a group about the need to forgive when she noticed a man walking towards her, and she noticed that that man coming towards her, who was actually coming to give her a good word, uh, was one of the men who did the tormenting when she was in prison. And she had a really, really big struggle, significant struggle in her, in her, in her own soul over this man, as you might think she would. And the thought came to her, just raise your hand. And I'll help you through this. <laughs> and she did. And she said she felt the warm go through, warmth go through her whole being. And she forgave him in that moment. And they actually um, became acquainted. And there was the relationship between two people, the captor and the captive, and uh, which blossomed into a what you might understand, what we would understand to be a Christian forgiveness and relationship. And he thanked her for her words and didn't even notice her at the time because of so many pr prisoners, no doubt, that he uh, abused. In verse 2, it says of Jonah, I cried for help from the depth of hell. You heard my voice. Depth is belly, body, womb, which I think is kind of interesting. He's, uh, he cried out from the belly, he said it, from the body, from the, the womb of the fish, so to speak. To him, undoubtedly felt like hell uh, as he descended into the depths. Um, in the midst of this story of a most unbelievable miracle, which all miracles are to unbelievers. Let us consider the place of miracles in believing from Luke 19, I'm sorry, Luke 16, 19 to the end. And we read this. Now there was a rich man from Luke 16, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. What a picture. Not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking his sores. So this guy was in misery, and he, he was accosted by dogs, and he, was, he had sores on his body, and he was starving to death. And, and this rich man obviously shows could care less. Uh, and it says in verse 22, Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abram's 
bosom or arms, and the rich man also died and was buried. Now, this is not a parable. This is not just a story. This is a true event that took place, which Jesus himself recounted. And in verse 23, and in Hades, in this place of torment or hell, he raised his eyes. That's the rich man. Being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the finger of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Obviously, the rich man hadn't made the adjustment yet. He doesn't really he thinks things are the way they were, that he's a rich man. He's in torment, but he's still in his mind, hasn't, it hasn't clicked yet that the situation has changed, and Abraham informs him of this. But, in verse 25, Abraham said, Child, remember, and of course, by this time he's certainly a child. Abraham's been there for quite a while. Uh, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set so that those who want to go over from here to you will not be able, nor will any people across over from there to us. This is the setting for thousands of years. Um, This place of torment existed. This is prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead when he led away captives, captive, as we're told in Ephesians chapter 4. And he emptied hell and he brought them into his own presence according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this place is only half full now with those of the lost. So after he mentioned this matter of the chasm, it says in 27, and he said, and this is the rich man, then I request of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment as well. It says a few things, and one thing is that he actually still had a concern for his brothers, which is kind of interesting, seeing that he's in hell. But the great white throne judgment hasn't taken place, and everything hasn't been stripped away. This is strictly a play, a holding place, torment, but a holding place for those awaiting the great white, those lost, awaiting the great white throne judgment. Verse 29, big butt comes up here. So he wants a man going, he wants... This poor man to go over, uh, Lazarus, and warn his brothers. Now Abraham starts with but. But Abraham said, I should say Jesus said, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, this is the rich man, no, Father Abraham, He's going to criticize Abraham here. 
he's going to correct Abraham. No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Man always has it in his mind, particularly the lost, that uh, if you see something, some things, like a miraculous thing, like a man raised from the dead, then you'll believe. Now this right here, Jesus is criticizing this kind of thinking. So for all my hearers out there that might be thinking along these lines that all you need is something to wake you up, some special miracle, some insight, some word, not word, but something to see, then that'll make the difference. But, speaking of Abraham, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now that's a big, strong statement by someone who really understood. Now this is a man who's already passed from death to a place of holding. This is a man of faith that was willing to slay his son in whom were all the promises because God told him so, believing that God would raise him from the dead. This is solely on faith, seeing nothing. It's the whole idea behind Hebrews chapter 11. Not the whole idea, but part of the idea behind chapter 11 is that men lived by faith, not having received the promise, but because of the hope that the promise was true, understanding that God doesn't lie, understanding that God's word is always according to truth. All of that is in these words. Going back to Moses and the prophets. If Moses and the prophets cannot persuade a man, you know what? Nothing will. Take this to heart. This is really important. Because this is the essence of faith. When the gospel is spoken, you either receive it on faith or you don't. A miracle, and by the way, let me just say quickly, that a miracle is nothing to see. Well, from the sense of a, a faithless person, it seems like a lot. And why do I say faithless? Because if we understand the things we don't see that happen every day, as in the providence of God, that he works all things together. There are billions probably, millions at least, of things that take place in the world every single day that make everything happen. This guy has a flat. That guy's running late. This guy's uh, running ahead of time. And bring all people together at the specific time that God wants it all to happen. Realizing that God doesn't only create, but he sustains all things, and he makes all things happen. Everything, according to Romans chapter 8, 28, happens according to God's design. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. His purpose makes everything happen. Now, if you can't believe that, don't think you're going to believe because someone is raised from the dead. Providential happenings are so much harder, infinitely harder, than a miracle. Guy dies, God, boom, dead, alive. Fish, he creates fish. He, he, he calms the storm, calm, it's just, you know, what is that? You know, by the power of God, it's incidental, first of all, uh, even to providence. It's so much harder for God's providence to work out, which it does every minute of every day, than a miracle. But see, for sinful men, miracle, that's a big thing. But let's go on in the story of Jonah. In the story of Jonah, 
And this whole idea with Moses brings us to this idea of repent. And you know what who brought it up was the rich man. If they see a man raised from the dead, they will repent. That's interesting. Repentance is the forgotten factor. The word most often left out of the gospel message, even though it isn't in the New Testament. Repentance in the New Testament always precedes faith. But if you listen to people today, you would think it was the other way around. That uh, faith always precedes repentance. That first you believe in Jesus. What are you believing in Jesus for if you're not repenting? There's no believing in Jesus unless it's with regards to the nature of sin, the wickedness of our hearts, that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, Jeremiah tells us. The heart is the problem. We are haters of God, according to Paul in Timothy. All of the the gospel points first, foremost, to the sin of man. Look, just look at Romans. Chapter 1, 2, 3, it's all dealing with how wicked men are and that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's all about bringing repentance before you hear the first real word of faith as exemplified in in Abraham in Romans chapter 4. You get three full chapters. The purpose of the book, 118, of course, is faith and it's mentioned there. And the just shall live by faith is quoted from the Old Testament. But first repentance must come. And that's where you have all chapters 1, 2, and 3. And Jonah, from the belly of a fish, speaking to God in this state of had to be great guilt for running away from God, you heard my voice. There's the faith of of a prophet of God of a man of God. God always hears the voice of those who authentically repent. And believe me, this is a word of repentance on the part of Jonah. Just come to Jesus. Just believe Jesus. But more importantly, always be wary of any sentence that begins with the word just. When someone says just come to Jesus, you know they're leaving something out. Because you don't just come to Jesus. You, you have to leave your sins you have to leave them where they, where they were placed by Jesus Christ was on his cross. He paid an awful price for those sins. And you can't carry them with you into the New Testament. You can't carry them into the gospel. You can't carry them with, by faith, be carrying them on the one hand and exercise faith in Jesus Christ to put them away on the other. And so if you're not acknowledging them, if you're not feeling the guilt and the weight of your conscience that's tearing at your soul, First of all, question your faith at that point. The gospel always, always begins with repentance. The Apostle Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus and confronted by him concerning his persecuting Jesus' church. He was blinded, broken in the knowledge of his sins, repented of those sins, and not only stopped persecuting Gentile believers, but began to be persecuted by them for Christ. This was all a resent, uh, the results of a man who was a Pharisee. One of those, just like one of those who put Jesus on the cross. And now he's running around trying to kill everybody he can who's following Jesus. And Jesus meets him on the road and said, why are you persecuting me? Well, he wasn't persecuting Jesus, except he was because Jesus was in every one of those true disciples in the first century. True repentance is a divine act 
of a sovereign God. Hear that? True repentance is a divine act of a sovereign God. Man is not capable of repenting to the, extent, uh, to the extent that God demands it. God demands true repentance, heartfelt, deep repentance. And it takes a change of nature to do that. It, it takes a new heart, as found in Hebrews 8 and 10. Jonah makes it perfectly clear in verses 3 through 7 the suffering he experienced. It was literally a deep water experience for him. Beginning in verse 3, For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows passed over me. You ever stand on the shore and you just see that water just breaking, you know, like when they're surfing and when they're really big, you know, and they get under them and they get in the tunnel, so to speak. Just breaking over. This is just this this circumstance that Jonah's feeling is just breaking on him like that kind of water. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. This is what he said when he's just about ready to lose consciousness. And he's recounting these details in his mind. And he's recounting them, as I said, in his own heart, kind of in a way to himself, he's recounting them. And he's also recounting them to Almighty God. Not for God's sake, like he knew what was going on, but because he's, he's recounting the, the grace of God that while he's in the sea and he's covered up and all of these details that are about to come out, you know, it's because God swept him up in a fish and he's carrying him and he's traveling along to a place where he knows, he probably knows where he's going. I don't know for sure. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. So he's cast out, but you know what? His faith is so strong. He knows what he repented of the first time. He knows his sins. He knows what God's capable of. He didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew God was capable of forgiving the people. If there's one thing a Christian understands, he understands the nature of forgiveness. A.J. Flint put it this way. Though we may waver, he remains steadfast. And all his words are sure. From everlasting unto everlasting, his promises endure. Though we may wander, he will not forsake us. Truer than earthly friend, he never fails our trust. For having loved us, he loves unto the end. Unto the end, we doubt him, we deny him, we wound him, we forget. We get some earthly idol up between us without one faint regret. And when it falls or crumbles, and in anguish, we seek this changeless friend. Lo, he receives us, comforts and forgives us, and loves us to the end. Jonah continues in his prayer in verse 5, quote, Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains, the earth with its bars around me forever. But you have brought me up, my life from the pit, O Lord. O Jehovah, my Elohim, while I was fainting away, I remembered Jehovah, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Jonah was heard by God in the midst of the Nile, having forsaken him, and his way. That is why Jonah says in verse 8, those 
who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. We are called to faithfulness as Christians. We know that God is faithful. But we are called to be faithful because of the cross by which Christ went into the grave, was raised on the third day in newness of life. And we're talking in time because of the weakness of our flesh. That God did these things within time. And when he was raised from the dead in time, the captives in paradise across from Hades or hell were set free and they were led captive to the presence of God, of Jesus Christ. When he was raised from the dead, he took that resurrection life, which the sin having been put in the grave would stay there. And the life that came up was the life of Christ. A life where we're told in Romans is a life that he's not to die anymore. The wages of sin is death. Christ can't die. He never sinned. He never sinned when our sin was put upon him. He's always sinless. He can do nothing but be sinless and holy and perfect. In fact, he's, he's a consuming fire of righteousness, which is why hell exists at all. And this God who is life, not just biological life, not biological life, eternal life, real life, true life, life you can't see or touch or feel or even understand. What we understand is the goodness of God, the character of God, the eternal nature of God. It's in the word. It's true. And a person who comes to faith has faith to see how true it is. And this is the God that we pursue by faith. This is the God who we pursue even when we fall. And we're meant to stand. And we're, we're meant to, to live a life that proceeds from an initial repentance. Or turning away from sin to living out a holy life. Pure life. Moral life. Truthful life. Lies are no more a part of it. So when the world around us is filled with lies as it always is. When the governments are lying. When the people are lying. When one person tells a lie and another person repeats the lie because he receives the lie. When all of this lying is going on, John said, I have no greater joy than my children walk in the truth. And in the truth, we find ourselves obedient to God. Truth of the theology that we believe. Truth to that form of doctrine which we became our own and we live out by faith. And so we live moral and godly lives forsaking all idols. When we regard vain idols, we forsake our own faithfulness. And John Calvin said that we are all idol factories. That factory has to be destroyed, put to death, blown up, reckoned dead as, as having been destroyed at the cross. Ezekiel chapter 20 rehearses the history of Israel from the time they came out from the house of Egypt and their repeated idolatries and how God repeatedly poured out his wrath upon them. And then we read in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verses 39 through 44, As for you, house of Israel, this is what Adonai your master, as in a master-slave relationship, 
Jehovah God says, Go serve every one of you his idols, but later you will certainly listen to me and my holy name you will no longer defile with your gifts and your idols. For on my holy mountain, on the high mountain of Israel, declares the Lord God, the Adonai Jehovah, there the entire house of Israel, all of them, will serve me in the land. There I will accept them, and there I will demand their contributions and the choices of your gifts. <coughs> Excuse me, with all your holy things, as a soothing aroma, I will accept you when you bring when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you are scattered, and I will show myself to be holy among you, separate in the sight of the nations. Verse 42, And you will know that I am Jehovah when I bring you into the land of Israel, into the land which I swore to give to your forefathers. Make no mistake, this is Israel. A people have, that have been uh, generated genetically from the seed of Abraham. And there you will remember your ways and all your deeds by which you have defiled yourselves and you will loathe yourselves and your own, in your own sight for all the evil that you have done. Solomon set up idols all over and for 700 years after that, that's all they did is commit idolatries until God took them into slavery again. And they were slaves to the idols all the time they did it. Then you will know that I am Jehovah when I have dealt with you in behalf of my name, not according to your evil ways or according to your corrupt deeds, house of Israel, declares the Lord God, Adonai, Jehovah. What's he saying there? He's gonna, it's grace. Grace for Israel. Thousands of years. Last 2,000 years. You know, sp spread out among all the nations of the world since 70 AD as judgment for having rejected Christ and for their constant idolatries. And all the Gentile nations, same way. You know, they're spread among all the Gentile nations. What are all the Gentile nations? They're all sinners. Only a remnant which we now call the church, from all nations, are saved, are believers in Jesus Christ by God's grace. It's not anything good coming from us Gentiles. We're all sinners, and apart from the grace of God, we would go to hell just like the rest, and we would receive eternal damnation like the rest. I have no clue why Jesus chose me or any other person who's ever been saved. From Adam and Eve all the way to this present hour, Every single person has been a, a sovereign choice, an almighty God, because the whole race was lost and destined for hell. So when God says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, all deserve e eternal punishment. Just, just stop right there. Just don't go any further. Don't go into some bizarre idea that somehow your choice is going to save you, because it won't. Unless God choose you first, which Jesus said you have a You've chosen me because I chose you, and I ordained you to eternal life. I mean, it just doesn't get clearer than that. So when, 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 you, when you think and when you've heard the gospel that puts it all in your lap, yes, exercise godly faith. How do you do that? Well, we don't understand how we do it when we do it. 
What I'm telling you is the truth necessary that you understand that God is in control. That's the, that that's begins the fear of God that you need to run away. You need to flee from this God because there is, an, there is a wrathful God. But at the cross where Jesus died and God sent his son for this. See, for my hearers, just like everyone who ever preaches the gospel, there are those who will never repent, just like that rich man. But there are those who will. Don't decide, you know, don't run away. Don't say that's wrong because, well, I can't do it. Say, no, uh, I don't know who it is, and it might be me. And if you feel guilty about your sins, and if you feel you need to repent, and if you see the wickedness of your soul, forget everything else. Just know to put your faith in Christ. And when you do, and if it's real, and if you get a new heart and you're regenerate, and your eyes are open, you will know God has done it. That's what you need, to know that God has done it. That's the, the basis for eternal security, for assurance of the In the heart of every believer, particularly a mature and doctrinally sound one, is locked away the reality that salvation is from the Lord. And Jonah prayed in verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you at the voice of thanksgiving. He knew who saved him. He knew who forgave him. He was looking at his heart at that very moment, having been a prophet of God, who already spoke to a nasty king and turned him away by the power of God, that it wasn't him. It wasn't his message. It wasn't his decisions that saved his life. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. You know, true, true and pure thanksgiving is in the heart of a person who knows that everything was the result of God. Paying the price on the cross? Absolutely. The choice itself, the new heart, the regenerated being and soul of the person, that's all the work of God. Could you born yourself? Were you uh, able to choose when you were born the first time? What makes you think you can be born again by your choice? A man must be born again. Jesus made that very proposition for that very purpose that we know that salvation is of God. That which I vowed, Jonah said, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. See, the reason he could make that vow without any misgivings that it, he could bring it to pass was the second part of that, the, the next statement. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Why? Because salvation is from the Lord. And salvation doesn't just mean entrance into the door. It means the whole path of walking it after that. It's all God. Don't lose track of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because without the Holy Spirit, you can't walk the walk. The Holy Spirit energizes the new heart, the new soul, the new mind. The Holy Spirit brings it to life from moment to moment. The Holy Spirit, you walk in the Spirit or you don't walk at all. You, walk, you can walk in carnally, but that's not really an option for us. Jesus having suffered on the cross. Having suffered on the cross, the only option left to us is that we suffer right along with him and we do what he tells us to do regardless of whether it feels right or not. <clears throat> Salvation that is from the Lord produces pleasing sacrifices of thanksgiving. We thank not ourselves for the fine job we did, but God for his sovereign hand that produces good works within us. 
Paul wrote in, to Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Verse 13. For it is God who works, who is at work in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. And that's both to will and to work. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If your will is good, you know God's doing it. If your will is bad, you know you're the source. That's the way it works. And it's that way. From the opening of the first door, you walk into salvation all the way to the end. Verse 10, the closing verse. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. And that word means just that. He spewed him out. He vomited him up. Or he vomited him out and he spewed him up. Out of, up out of the belly. Just like you puke out the food that you don't want anymore. That's what the fish did. I'm not sure what Jonah meant. I can't read his heart. I, I've already kind of disclosed though what was going on in his mind and his conscience, and the guilt that he had to be experiencing. And it would carry him right through chapters 3 and 4, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. So then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto dry ground. I'm not sure if this next statement is completely accurate, but I, I want to mention it. So the chapter ends in Jonah's own words. I really believe that he's telling this story. So the chapter ends, and I'll explain more, in Jonah's own words, that he was vomited out and spewed up. Now I'm not saying that Jonah referred to himself as a piece of vomit, but it's kind of implied. Now maybe there's no other way. I mean, you can get that picture where the fish comes and opens his mouth and Jonah just kind of waltzes out of his tongue and onto the dry ground and you know, tips his hat and says, thank you, and goes on walking. I mean, you can do that. But of course, in Jonah's words, it's not like that. It's like this, the fish comes up, sticks his head out of the water, and <clears throat> spits him out, uh, vomits him out, spews him up. And that's what the word means. Was it meant to mean that Jonah felt like a piece of puke, like a piece of vomit? He probably did. I mean, he was headed in the other direction. He just was not going to do what God wanted him to do. And the reason, you know, just pride. Pride in his country, pride in his nation, pride in his people, just like we have pride in our denominations and pride in our scholarship and our education and our Christian knowledge. And pride, pride, pride eventually make, will make you feel like a piece of vomit. Dear Heavenly Father, we recognize that your word is a mirror. It's a reflection of who we are. And we are told by our brother James that we shouldn't walk away and forget what manner of man we are. Because when we read the word, we see what we really are. We like to think of ourselves in a good light. We like to think of ourselves as a people who are basically good. Um, and we know and we have this hope that by the grace of God, we are being transformed into good people. That our soul is, is changing. 
we, we, we look into that mirror, which is really reflected to us of Christ, which is just everything we're not, and yet he's almighty God and completely man. And in that reflection, we see what we can be, what we're meant to be, what we're being transformed into by the very power of God, those of us who believe, those of us who believe the truth from the word of God, those who are are wrecking ourselves dead to sin in Christ and alive to God through his resurrection from the dead. Lord, keep our, our doctrine straight. May we not sway by idolatries of, uh, of, of different denominationalisms, that we look to those traditions and those teachings which may not even slightly be biblical. They may sound good, but they may be as wrong as the day is long. And so, uh, our Father, we pray that you would grant us to take these truths of what we are in ourselves, and the hope that we have of growing in Christ and already being in Christ and have been identified as we're taught in Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and walking in the Spirit. And that make all of that true as we reckon it to be so by your grace and by your power so that we in the end might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Lord, that joy... That looks really good. Really, it looks good to me. It really looks good to anyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ because the days are evil and they're not getting better. And so we ask all of these things, not only for ourselves only, but for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.